following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. All right, well, the other day I got my voter pamphlet for the statewide election. Do you guys get yours? And did you notice how many people are on those various offices? I mean, I think the governor's office, there was 15 names alone. And, and I'm looking through this list, and I, I maybe know one or two of them, and I'm thinking, who in the world are these people, and who should I vote for? Um, again, there's at least 15 candidates for governor, male and female, Democrat, Republican, Green Party, Peace and Freedom Party, some that declare themselves independent. And I noticed, too, I don't know if you saw in the voter pamphlet, it also lists their occupations currently, right? One, of course, is the current governor. Then there's a state assemblyman. There are some business owners, uh, some businessmen, a couple of authors. And there's a guy who's getting his Ph.D. He's a Ph.D. student. I thought about that one a minute. Okay, gee, uh, what do I do next after my doctorate? I think I'll run the largest state in the union. That sounds like a good luck with that one. There's a minister, a golf course operator. And finally, somebody listed as a psychologist slash farmer. <laughs> I thought about that. What, does this guy have an office where, you know, cattle come in and are suffering from OCD and, you know. <laughs> so, anyway, but again, you look through this list and how do you sort through it? How does one decide? Well, as with everything in life, it is God who we must consult with. In Romans 13, God has said and indicated he has given within society individuals and institutions in order to govern society. Just what does he expect of them? Because that's what matters. What does God want in the leaders of these lands, these nations? What does he want for the leaders in our state? And that's what the third chapter of Micah is all about. Micah addresses this issue. So if you please turn there with me. Micah chapter 3. After Micah's specific address in chapter 2 to the evil land barons, Micah now sets his sights in chapter 3 on those who are in authority in both the civil and spiritual arenas. And if you would, please stand as I read from Micah chapter 3. And as I'm reading, I want you to see if you can identify there's one particular focus that Micah has in terms of those who lead. I want you to see if you can see it. Micah begins, And I said, Hear now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate good and love evil, who tear off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones, and who eat the flesh of my people, strip off their skin from them, break their bones, chop them up as for the pot and as meat in a kettle. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. Instead, he will hide his face from them at that time, because they have practiced evil deeds. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. When they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry peace. But against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they declare holy war. Therefore, it will be night for you without vision and darkness for you without divination. The sun will go down on the prophets, and the day will become dark over them. The seers will be ashamed, and the diviners will be embarrassed. Indeed, they will all cover their mouths, because there is no answer from God. On the other hand, I am filled with power, 
with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and courage to make known to Jacob his rebellious act, even to Israel his sin. Now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe, her priests instruct for a price, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. You may be seated. Thank you. So going through those verses, did you catch the focus? Did you catch what is most important to God in regards to those in leadership. What is it? It's one word. Justice. Justice. He repeats that word three times and also its antonym, injustice, in verse 11. God wants leaders to be just. That's the theme of this chapter. In fact, he sets that theme in place solidly at the end of verse 1 when he says, Is it not for you to know justice? And here in chapter 3, Micah takes on the political and the religious establishments in his land, calling them out to the fact that that's the very thing that they neglected to do. And before we look at how Micah unfolds that in this chapter, I want to take a step back a minute and just look at the overall structure of Micah and the setting for Micah chapter 3. Micah's book essentially contains three of the messages, three messages that he had delivered among many over the course of his 20 plus years in the ministry. And the first message that we looked at was in chapters 1 and 2. The second message we're beginning to look at here in chapters 3 through 5. And the third message is chapters 6 and 7. And in these messages, again, that took place uh, over the course of his 20 years, that, uh, beginning in the end of, at the end of the reign of King Jotham, all the way through King Ahaz's reign, and finally into the reign of King Hezekiah of Judah, And these messages, uh, the first and third ones, are hard to pinpoint exactly when they may have taken place. But the message we see here in chapter 3, we can actually identify when it was delivered. We have a very narrow time frame. And the reason for that is because about 100 years later, in Jeremiah 26, he quotes from, or there's a quote from Micah 3, chapter 3, verse 12. And after that quote, it says in Jeremiah that how King Hezekiah responded. And so we know that this message was delivered during the reign of King Hezekiah, probably early in his reign, because uh, the Reformation under Hezekiah had not yet happened. And early in his reign, so that, but, but before, excuse me, after the Assyrian invasion in the north, there were probably a number of refugees that had come from the, remember the ten northern tribes were wiped out by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. Hezekiah took sole reign of the throne in Judah after that time. And so there probably was an influx of those trying to escape the Assyrians coming into Judah. In fact, excavations have been uncovered or dated to the late 8th century around the time of, uh, of Micah here. It shows in Jerusalem it expanded by over three times during this time period, which makes sense if there were many refugees that were entering into the land. We'll see a little bit of that later in verse 10, all the construction that was going on. And so this message, again, was delivered early in Hezekiah's reign. And like many of the prophets before Micah and after, in Judah, they would go into the temple to deliver a message. Uh, Jesus often 
spoke and preached and taught in the temple. Well, Micah probably was there delivering this message to both the civic and religious leaders in Jerusalem. He was in Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. And Micah's message here in chapter 3 is divided into three sections. He first addresses the civic leaders in verses 1 through 4. And then after that, he addresses the prophets in verses 5 through 8. And then finally, in verses 9 through 12, he gives a general address to all the leaders in Judah. And I've outlined this morning's message following those three sections. Verses 1 to 4 are titled, Judges Judging Unjustly. In verses 5 through 8, prophets prophesying for profit. Say that ten times fast. Verses 9 through 12, leaders leading for loot. All right. But we see in verse 1 that Micah begins his second message the way he began his first message back in chapter 1, verse 2, and the way he begins his third message in chapter 6. And that is with the word hear. Shema, listen. But not only listen, respond. And the first group that he calls to hear in chapter 3 is, he describes as the heads of Jacob and the rulers of the house of Israel. Now often these terms Jacob and the house of Israel are in reference to all of Israel. But as I said, this message took place after the fall of the ten northern tribes. He's focusing his message primarily on Judah. We see that in verses 10 through 12 where he references Jerusalem directly. And in a sense, there would be all 12 tribes represented because, as I mentioned, several refugees had probably come into the south. So it's very likely the fact that all 12 tribes were represented there. In any case, Micah here specifically addresses the heads or the rulers. That word head or leader was first used back in Exodus 18. That was when the people of Israel had come out of Egypt and Moses was trying to uh, adjudicate, to to resolve matters within the people himself, which was a difficult task because how many people were there in the nation of Israel? There were millions. And that's when his father-in-law, you remember, came up to him and said, you're going to wait yourself out, dude. You need to come up with a plan. And so Moses then appoints leaders for uh, divisions and subdivisions in order to take care of these many matters of uh, regarding uh, justice and administration among the people. And it turns out that as time went on, and we'll see in Deuteronomy 16, that, that that leadership structure was retained as the people entered into the promised land and they, each city was formed and each town and village, they would have a group of leaders who would, who would co- collect themselves at the city gate at the entrance and they would take care of matters involving uh, people within the city, civic matters or other issues that would take place. One example of this is seen in the days of Ruth. You remember that when Boaz had said he would marry her and he went to the elders, the leaders at the city gate in order to, uh, to carry out that transaction. You remember the whole single shoe thing and what in the world's going on here? Well, that, that was all part of this, uh, him going to the leaders because he was also not only marrying Ruth, but uh, the inheritance that uh, he would take care of the inheritance which belonged to Ruth's first husband. And here in Exodus 18, Moses notes that when he chose these leaders, it says he chose able men, those who were men with wisdom, who feared the Lord. And why did he do that? Why did he have to choose or choose to choose men of godly integrity? Well, Moses makes the reason obvious in his question at the end of verse 1. As he redresses the leaders of his day, he says, Is it not for you to know justice? The obvious answer is what? Of course. 
That word justice, again, it's repeated three times in this chapter, mishpat, and its antonym or opposite is also given in verse 10, injustice. That word justice is most frequently used in regards to giving a fair judgment in accordance with the law when settling matters of dispute or regarding property or criminal acts. And the law in this case will be what? What was the standard by which they were to judge? Which law? The Mosaic law, right? Ten Commandments form the core, the foundation of that. So the just or right decision that God expected of leaders was one that reflected what His law had intended and communicated. God gave His law, and God has established governments. Romans 13.4 is very clear about that. He's established governing authorities to uphold what is right and to punish what is wrong according to His standards. Romans 13.4 says that governing authorities are a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For, again, it is a minister of God an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Peter said in 1 Peter 2.13 that kings and governors are given, listen, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. You see the focus here, both from Peter and Paul, these apostles are talking about is that leaders are to be just. They are to uphold good. They are to encourage what is good. And they are to judge and to point out and to expose what is evil. And since this is the case, what do you think would be foremost, again, in God's mind for what he would require for those who would lead in the civic arena? If they were to uphold what is good and judge what is evil, they needed to be just. Just. Moses made this abundantly clear in Deuteronomy sixteen eighteen, where he says, You shall appoint for yourselves judges and officers in all your towns, which the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes. And they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. You shall not take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Justice, justice you shall pursue, that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. In a speech to the House of Commons in 1851, British politician Benjamin Disraeli said, Judgment or justice is truth in action. But that wasn't the case among the judges and the leaders in Micah's day. Notice in verse 2, Micah says that rather than endorsing what is good, they hated it. And rather than judging evil, they embraced it. They loved it, Micah said. Indeed, justice had departed from Judah. And as we saw back when we look through Amos together, and as we saw back in Micah chapter 2, who, who was it that would suffer when there's injustice in the land? The poor, the vulnerable, the needy, the weak. And the situation that had taken place, what Micah's condemning here is that people, those who were poor and vulnerable and needy, as they were being displaced from their land or taken advantage of or oppressed, and they would go to the place to seek justice, to seek help for themselves. They'd go to the city gate. And they go to the, those who were in charge and they would lay before them their case and what was happening to them. And this is the response. And all the while, the back pockets of the judges were getting packed with cash. They were being bought off. And so they would ignore the pleas and the cries of those seeking help. 
those coming to them, the orphans, the widow, the, those who were in need would come looking for a defender and instead they found a devourer. They were looking for a comforter and instead they found a consumer. And that's exactly what verses 2 and 3 describe when they're talking about these civic leaders. It's a graphic picture that Micah paints as he describes the innocent having their skin stripped off of them and the flesh ripped off of their bones and their bones and flesh being chopped up and thrown into a pot and eaten. It's repulsive. It's like a modern day horror flick where blood spattering everywhere and people are being stripped and eaten and cannibalized before our eyes and you think, Micah, that's a little bit over the top. It's a disgusting picture. And Micah intended it to be that. He intended us to be repulsed in hearing this description of these leaders because he wanted us to see exactly how God views injustice, what it looks like to him. Orphans and widows not being defended, the vulnerable being exploited, hardworking citizens being cheated and taken advantage of, the needy being abused, And those who were in authority, who had the ability to do something about it, not only did they stand by and do nothing, they actually were participating in the exploitation. And to God, that was was just like them ripping the flesh off of these poor people and eating it. God wanted them to clearly understand this was no small issue. This was no insignificant matter. This was a big deal. And to God, these rulers were brutal butchers. And so in verse 4, it addresses specifically these rulers, the they there refers to these magistrates, and it says as judgment was coming upon them, they would cry out for help, just like the poor and needy who were coming to them for help. But God says there, when you come to me, the chief justice, cry for help, you'll get the same response that you gave those coming to you. I'm not going to answer you. I'm going to ignore you. These are sobering verses. (laughs) And it tells us, beloved, that God is fiercely concerned about justice. About when wrongs are not being condemned. And when those who've been given the responsibility to lead, when they commit injustice, that is serious. That's a big deal to God. The primary thing God expects from political and judicial leaders in the land is justice. You know, I wonder when God looks at our nation, what does he see? What does he think? Many of you are probably familiar with uh, Kermit Gosnell, the, the man who ran a dilapidated abortion clinic in Philadelphia. Um, about three years ago, he was charged for eight murders. One was a woman who had died in the procedure uh, because of his negligence. And the seven others that he was charged with were infants that had been born alive. That he had taken a pair of scissors and jammed in the back of their skull and snipped their brainstem. One testimony had one of the assistants was actually playing with one of these children. Well, a year ago, he was convicted on three counts of murder. He's now in prison. My question to you is, Do you think God was satisfied with that judgment? Was justice really done? Because as despicable as 
jamming a sharp object into the back of a baby's neck is, what about the tens of thousands of infants that were ripped apart by him while they were in their mother's womb? And all of that was sanctioned and protected by the United States government. Was justice really done? Brothers and sisters, this is the ultimate injustice. These are the most helpless and vulnerable and weak. These are the least protected. Of anybody in this land, they are the ones that should be protected. And yet, so many of our leaders embrace and advocate this. This is terrible injustice. The same can be said for God's institution of marriage. We see this from the government's adoption of no-fault divorce in the late 60s to the acceptance of cohabitation to the recent push by leaders across the nation for same-sex marriage. And I put marriage in quotes. What does God design marriage for, beloved? What's it for? What's it to be a picture of? Jesus and the church. It's an illustration. It was given to us as a picture of Christ's sacrificial love for his people and his people's response and submission and respect to their Lord and Savior. So attacking marriage is a big deal. It's it's meant to be a picture of the gospel. So when it's polluted and degraded and made irrelevant and mocked in this way, that matters to God. And brothers and sisters, let me just take a moment here to encourage you in your marriage. God has given it to you as a companionship. What are you doing with it? He has given it to you to be a source and a light of the gospel to those around you. He has given it to you so that you would reflect the wonderful good news that we have a Savior who loves His people. That's what your marriage is supposed to reflect. But again, in this land, it's, it's being made irrelevant. I saw an article last week of a man who wants to marry his computer. I laughed at first, too, but it wasn't a joke. He's got all this pornography on it, and he wants to have a legal relationship with this device. It's a joke. It's a joke against marriage. It's a joke against what God intended to be a beacon for the gospel. There's so many more examples of injustice in our day. Preferential treatment of the rich and famous. Racism. Corruption at all levels. of Government. Bribery. Beloved, we must be praying. We must be praying faithfully for our leaders. For these coming elections. Amen? Because we have the privilege, right? And we have the responsibility to select these leaders. To vote for them. And as you vote... Remember, what is the greatest of the greatest importance to God in this? Justice. It, it's good if a candidate knows how to lead. It's good if they're a good administrator, if they're honest, if they have experience in resolving disputes. It's good and helpful if they know something about economics. These are all good things. But what's the best thing? What's the most important thing? What's the, really, at the end of the day, the main thing that matters? 
We must have leaders who encourage what is good and deplore what is evil. We must not support those who advocate murdering the unborn or those who endorse marriage that differs from God's design or those who use their position to influence or manipulate others or those who desire to eliminate or endorse or relax consequences for those who have been convicted of crimes. Martin Luther King Jr. said, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. George Washington said the administration of justice is the firmest pillar of government. And I know I have stepped boldly into the political arena here. And some of you may not be so happy with me about that. But the Bible has instruction for us in all aspects of life. And beloved, politics is not exempt from the will of God. He created governments. He created us. He created this universe. He gets to decide how he wants it to run. He gets to decide who he wants in authority. It's his decision. And we need to follow it. He's made it very clear. He's made it clear through his word that he established governments and that they are subject to him. And God requires our leaders to be just. That they be just. Amen? And that goes not only for those in civic leadership, but especially for those who are in spiritual leadership. And that is who Micah addresses next in verses 5 through 8 in a section again I've titled Prophets Prophesying for Profit. Look again at verse 5. Micah says, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. Again, prophets were those who were supposed to be spokespersons for God. They were those who were supposed to let the people know God's will and and direction for their lives. But instead, these guys were leading people astray. And if that wasn't bad enough, they weren't doing it because they were lazy or irresponsible. They were doing it because they wanted to profit by it. They wanted to thicken their wallets with cash. This is shown in verse 5 where Micah says, Literally, when they, that is the prophets, are biting with their teeth, they say, Peace. But against he who gives nothing in their mouths, they proclaim a holy war. That's a a picture. It's meant to be those who provide for them, those who care for them, those who give them uh, them financially, like feeding them. The message they're going to hear is shalom, which is this idea of God's pleased with you. He's satisfied with you. He's going to bless you. You have peace with him. But if you didn't give them enough or didn't give them anything, the message you would hear is God is against you. There's a holy war. I'm glad that didn't have any juice in it. It's a holy war he's going to proclaim against you. God's mad at you. That's the message that they would hear. And so that's what the prophets were doing. And the problem here isn't that the prophets were receiving uh, financial uh, income for Uh, ministering that that was not something that god prohibited for them the issue was that the prophets were tailoring the message to maximize their personal gain they weren't speaking on behalf of god but on behalf of their bellies if you gave them a good amount you'd get a good message if you gave them little or nothing you'd get a bad one remember back in micah 2 Micah, we were talking about that last week when the people wanted to hear nice messages. And uh, verse 11 of chapter 2, he summarized it when he said, If a lying windbag should come and say, I'll promise you blessings of wine and beer, he would be just the right preacher for this people. 
Right? That's what they wanted. Well, here in chapter 3, we see the other side of that coin. Those who are totally willing to oblige that desire for the right price. And what's really sad is these prophets, they weren't prophets of Baal. They weren't prophets of false gods. These were guys who were saying they were speaking for the Lord. That they were representing Yahweh. But you know what? They didn't care if their messages were misleading. They didn't care if somebody came to them in sin who needed to hear a call to repentance and an exhortation to do what is right and to seek forgiveness. They would tell those people for enough money, they'd be the windbags to tickle their ears rather than calling them to repent. Because they, didn't, they couldn't have cared less for these people's souls. Doesn't this hit close to home? <laughs> As we think about again what passes for preaching in many parts of our land today. Talked about this a little last week, but this nation's filled with prophets for hire who claim to represent God, but they're only in it for the money. Do I have to go through the examples? I think we're all aware of the many terrible abuses. Reminds me of the many warnings in the New Testament regarding false teachers. Do you remember what one of the chief characteristics of false teachers would be? Greed. They're in it for the money. They aren't in it to shepherd God's people. They aren't in it to help God's people know God or know what He desires. They're peddling the Word of God for personal gain, as Second Corinthians 2.17 says. And you know, I, I often tell myself that the minute that I start calling this a job or means of an income, I have to walk away. I'm serious about that. Ed, same thing for you, brother. All the pastors here. If it becomes about money, we've got to walk away because that is the first step down a very, very slippery slope because it will affect what I say. It will blunt the message. Please pray for us, would you? God wants His people to hear from God. And so in verses 6 through 7, God judges these prophets for hire by saying, you know what? You're going to come to me for enlightenment. Instead, you're going to see darkness. And he gives this picture. They'd be in the dark. Not only that they wouldn't know what God has to say, but also that they'd be in darkness as a picture of judgment. Bruce Waltke said, their crystal balls will go black. The next... Verse, verse 7 shows their crystal balls will be smashed as they are exposed and disgraced. Just as God would not answer the judges when they were going to call out to him in judgment. So too, when these prophets would cry out to God for a direction and a message, God would not answer. Then we come to verse 8, where Micah reveals the, just the kind of prophet God wants. And he does this as he contrasts himself with these peddlers around him micah describes himself here just like paul often did not to boast not to say hey look at me i'm cool i'm a guy you want to listen to because i'm just the great guy no right micah was declaring that he was a messenger from the one true god because he wanted them to listen he wanted them to know what god said because he cared about him and so here in verse 8 we're given a, really a template of what we must look for in those who would claim to be speaking or teaching from God's Word. The man must be one first who is full of the Spirit or 
we would describe Galatians 5 terminology, walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ. One who is not depending on his own strength, but God's. Spending time with the Lord, time in prayer, time with God's people. For as Micah says here, the the power comes not through a person's persuasive words or charismatic presence or logical reasoning or ability to communicate, but the power comes through the work of the Holy Spirit as His Word is being proclaimed. When a man is led by the Spirit, that man is empowered with justice and courage to say what needs to be said. That word courage there. It's a word that carries the idea of mighty, of of strong, of of bold. In fact, my daughter, Gabrielle, her name is from that Hebrew word. It's a great word. And in this context, it carries the idea of boldness. God's mouthpiece must have boldness to speak what God wants to be said, no matter the outcome. Because often the content of the message is not something that people want to hear. Notice at the end of verse 8, Micah says that the Spirit... To, it would, you have the spirit of the Lord, justice and courage in order to make known to Jacob his sins. Any who would speak for God must be bold enough to expose and confront. And it reminded me of Paul's prayer in Ephesians 6, toward the end of his letter to the Ephesians. And he asked for prayer. He said, pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. I thought about that. Again, why why would Paul ask for prayer for boldness in speaking the gospel and preaching the gospel? I mean, would he need boldness to tell people that, that God's love and care and compassion for them and that he had died on a cross, that he has provided a way in order to have fellowship with him in heaven for eternity? I think... Most people would want to hear that. Why would he need boldness in order to proclaim that message? Well, because the gospel first confronts sin, doesn't it? It first declares that all of us are unworthy sinners who deserve God's eternal punishment in hell for our sins. There's no other way. And Paul wanted boldness and ask for boldness to declare the message because the message contained that as well that he would be confronting people in their sin just as micah was just as micah needed courage to speak it's a strong message and i'm certain there are some here today who need to hear and respond to that very message that you As all of us are a sinner desperately in need of a Savior, desperately in need of someone to forgive your sins because you can't take care of them on your own. Confident that there are some here that need to recognize that desperate need for a Savior. A Savior that has come, by the way, whose death and resurrection we celebrated just a few minutes ago with the cracker and the juice. A Savior that has made a way for you to be forgiven. When he died on a cross and his blood was pouring out, that blood can cleanse you from your sin, can remove the guilt from you. Like like those things, what were those things that come in the laundry? The cling freeze, you throw them in there and the clothes wouldn't stick together. Kind of that idea that your sin would no longer be stuck to you, that as you stood before the throne of judgment, that your sin would be gone because Jesus paid for it forever. 
He will grant you salvation. He will grant you freedom. He will grant you an eternal relationship if you confess that you are a sinner before him, that you deserve his judgment, but you desire to turn from that sin and follow him in faith. Trust in him. Amen. That is the message. But if you reject him, you're going to be like these people in Micah who rejected him. And when they cried out, to God when judgment came upon them God rejected them and beloved it wasn't just Paul or Micah who needed boldness it's not just me who needs boldness it's not just our brothers and sisters on the Saturday night evangelism team who need boldness if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ you also need boldness to preach the gospel For there are those in your life to whom you may be the only prophet they hear. Don't let fear keep you silent. We all struggle with courage. (laughs) Paul did. And if he did, (laughs) for sure any of us do. We all understand that. But remember this. The same Holy Spirit who empowered Micah to speak will empower you. If you're willing. We're getting back to Micah 3. We've seen this message to civic leaders in verses 1 to 4 and his message to prophets in verses 5 through 8. In the last four verses, uh, Micah widens his scope to essentially address all the leaders in Judah, whether civil or spiritual. Looking again at verses 9 to 12, we see leaders leading for loot. And he widens his scope because in verse 11, uh, we see there he mentions judges and prophets, but he also mentions priests. Isaiah chapter 3 identifies Judah's leaders as not just the judge and the prophet, but also the military leaders, counselors, excuse me, royal officials, the elders, the influential. And notice here in verse 9, these were described as those who abhor justice. Not only did they love evil and hate good, but they were repulsed by what is just. That is how bad it had gotten. Verses 10 to 11 show that they use people for their selfish ends. Verse 10 describes how they're building Zion upon people's bloodshed and injustice. Again, there was a huge, massive construction project. We read a little bit about it in Hezekiah's days back in Kings and Chronicles. But apparently, as we learned back in Amos, people were being exploited. And in these building projects, they were probably uh, forcing people into to doing them. Those who were poor, destitute, needy, desperate And construction in those days was pretty dangerous. It's dangerous today. It was even more so then. So many would have died, suffered injury, but they didn't care. They didn't care at all. As one commentator said, in Micah's affluent society, only human life was cheap. The selfish motives are clearly exposed in verse 11 when it says there that the judges were taking bribes and settling legal matters. God said not to do. The priests were only giving instruction if they get paid, which God says not to do because he said, don't take any inheritance, don't take any money, priests. I will be the one that cares for you. Prophets would only speak, verse 11 says, if they were handsomely rewarded. And again, we see here that these unjust leaders, they were only in it for themselves. Something completely antithetical to what God wants to see in a leader, right? Jesus, the supreme leader, when he came, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
And so we're reminded here that people do not exist for the sake of the leader, but the leader for the sake of the people. Those being led are not for the benefit of the one leading them. It's the other way around. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be servant of all. This is so important for every leader to understand, especially those in the church. Looking at verse 12, we see God's response to the injustice, to the abuse of authority that was going on in Judah. And he says there that he would make Jerusalem into a heap of rubble. He would bring them low. He would wipe out everything. And this judgment would have shocked those listening Because for one, if you look at the end of verse 11, what was their mentality? They were saying, the Lord is in our midst. No calamity is going to come upon us. And so when Micah says, actually, it's the other way around, you're going to be totally decimated. That would have been a shock. Another reason they would have been shocked is the way that Micah described this decimation was the same exact way that he described how Samaria would be judged. Back in chapter 1, verse 6, apostate Samaria would suffer the same exact judge or suffered the same exact judgment that they would suffer. And that's a judgment these people had seen. Because again, the Assyrian invasion of Samaria had already taken place. And so they'd be going, What? You gotta be kidding, Micah. But this was the doom to which they were going to suffer in God's judgment. And I want us in concluding this morning, I want us to I like to do this every so often. Put, let's put ourselves back in Judah's day for a minute and consider, you know, everything's going on. We're a people there and we've, we've trusted the Lord. We're trying to be faithful to him. And then all around us is this injustice. Um, all around us, these things are taking place. We're vexed by all the corruption that's going on. Babies are being murdered in that day and sacrificed to false idols. It's adultery and fornication and marriage has been obliterated as well in those days. Again, the injustice, the abuses, all these things going on. And we're sitting there and it's like, how much hope do you think we'd have? Nothing's going to change, Micah. Why are you bothering? We're done. These people aren't even listening. Our land is doomed. I think God's judgment to us would seem to be a foregone conclusion, right? Now think about ourselves today. The situation we're in now, what we see going on around us. It's very easy to be cynical today, isn't it? Why bother? And Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 to pray for our leaders, for their salvation. Do you find it hard at times to have faith to really do that? God, it's beyond hope here. And I have to tell you, I've really struggled with this. I read... Paul's call to pray, and sometimes in my heart I'm saying, yeah, right. Because I, I see what's going on around us. It seems our nation is in a fixed, downward spiral away from God, very similar to what's seen in Micah's day. To me, it honestly seems impossible for anything to change. Yeah, a massive revival among the leaders of our land. Really? <laughs> That's exactly what the people of Judah the faithful were probably thinking too. And you know, my time studying this week has given me some hope though. And I found that hope in Jeremiah 26. So if you please turn there with me, we're going to close our time together in this chapter because I want you to have reason to hope. 
I know some of us here are struggling with cynicism and lack of faith that God can do anything at this point. Remember, this nation, these people that Micah was speaking to were under judgment, were under condemnation. Judgment was coming, God said. The events of Jeremiah 26. Um, and I, going back to this chapter, because as I mentioned earlier, Jeremiah 26, 18 is a direct quote of Micah 3:12. So there's a connection between these two chapters. Jeremiah 26 takes place probably a little over 100 years after Micah's day. And here in this chapter in Jeremiah, it's probably, it is during the beginning of Jehoiakim's reign, which is a few years before King Nebuchadnezzar brought his army into Jerusalem and uh, was his first siege of Jerusalem in 605 B.C. But just before that, here's Jeremiah. He's standing in the temple courts. He's declaring a message that God has given him. And that message was similar to Micah's in that he was saying, Jerusalem is going to become a curse because of the sin that's taken place in this land. Now, as he's there in the temple declaring this message, the priests and the prophets who were there didn't take so kindly to his sermon. In fact, they came up to Jeremiah, grabbed him and said, you're a dead man. Some of the royal officials, the officials in the royal court, heard about the ruckus that was going on in the temple, and so they came down to see what was going on. We read in verse 11, Then the priests and the prophets spoke to the officials and to all the people, saying, A death sentence for this man, for he has prophesied against this city, as you have heard in your hearing. Jeremiah replied to that, and essentially he says, You know what? Do what you want with me, but know this. This message isn't mine. It comes from God. Then notice the official's response in verse 16. Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and to the prophets, No death sentence for this man, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. Then some of the elders of the land rose up and spoke to the assembly of the people, saying, Micah of Morasheth, there he is, there's our guy. Micah of Morasheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. And he spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus the Lord of hosts has said, Zion will be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem will become ruins, and the mountain of the house and the mountain of the house is the high places of a forest. Stop there. This is a direct quote of Micah three twelve. In fact, uh, I believe this is the only time in the Old Testament that a minor prophet is quoted. This is a pretty special verse, a unique verse. And here, it's being quoted more than a hundred years after Micah. They still remembered his words. And why is it that they remembered his words? Do you know what they brought about? Notice King Hezekiah's response in verse 19. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him, that is Micah, to death? Did he, that is Hezekiah, not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And the Lord changed his mind about the misfortune which he had pronounced against them. When Micah delivered this message, culminating in verse 12, that Jerusalem was going to be a heap of rubble, and Hezekiah heard that message, how did he respond? Humble repentance. And you know what happened after that? If we were to go back and look in 2 Kings 18 to 20 and 2 Chronicles 29 to 32, we would read of this incredible revival that took place in Hezekiah's reign, they were pitching idols out the door, smashing them, getting rid of them. All of the feasts and the celebrations were being reinstituted. God was being worshipped and honored as he rightly should have been. 
All because Micah spoke. Hezekiah heard. I'm so encouraged by this. <laughs> because again, as bad as things are, as are, are here, they were worse in Judah. As far away as their hearts were, there still came a massive revival in response to Micah's faithful preaching. And so honestly, brothers and sisters, we need to be praying in faith because it's not over yet. Amen? Even though judgment was, there was a cloud of judgment over Judah and eventually the people then went, went back to their wicked ways and the nation was judged. But there was a moment, even in the midst of this downfall in Jesus' history, when Reformation happened. It could still happen here, as hopeless as that might seem. So pray for salvation and preach the gospel. As followers of Christ and as submiss- submissive citizens in this land, we must be praying, praying for the salvation of our leaders and for justice in our land. So again, beloved, pray for salvation and preach the gospel. Pray and preach. That's your mission. That's your mission. That's our mission. 